You cannot run operations through an, a political optic. Uh, operations should be led and devised and approved by the people that know what the hell they're doing. That doesn't mean you don't do it with White House approval, but you cannot allow a political, you know, optic to change that. Bay of Pigs is a perfect example of that and many, many others. An excerpt from today's guest, whose memoir on shadow ops has become a New York Times bestseller. Legendary CIA paramilitary and operations officer Rick Prado is here to talk about his book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. And I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. I've just released a brand new documentary. You can watch online for free on Tubi, the streaming service from Fox. The show is called Weather and Warfare, Millennia to Modern Time. Weather and Warfare dramatically retraces the meteorological forces during battlefield engagements that doomed or saved civilizations. In 1588, more than half of the Spanish Armada on its way around northern Britain was destroyed by storms in retreat back to Spain. Napoleon's attack on Russia was stopped cold by winter weather, as was Hitler's siege of Leningrad. Just click on the link in this episode's description to watch on the web or download the app or watch on Roku for free. I hope you check it out. Welcome back. Today's guest is a retired CIA operations officer who specialized in paramilitary, counterterrorism, and clandestine operations. Escaping Cuba as a child amidst the violence of Castro's Cuban Revolution, he would go on to retire as the CIA's equivalent of a two-star general after a 24-year career. His book is called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, an author and former CIA counter-terrorist chief of operations, Rick Prado, joins us now. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Robert. Well, I always tell everyone it's an honor, and it is an honor, sir, to have you with us. And before we get into the book, I wanted to ask a little bit about your uh, family history, because it was, uh, it was under Castro, your family sent you to America. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that that was probably uh, God's way of forging myself for, for my future. Um, I was uh, seven or eight years old when the revolution was raging, uh, and the small town that I lived in uh, was under attack, harassment attacks. And I literally saw my first firefight two feet from my face at the age of seven and a half or eight. Um, that was... Uh, something that gets your attention, especially at that age, but not in a negative way. I was kind of fascinated with the whole kinetic dynamics of, of, uh, of what was going on. My parents thought otherwise, of course. But you know what uh, came next was even it were more frightful, which was the takeover by communism, how quickly it changed the lives of my family and, and my first country. You know, all the business being confiscated, um, the, the, the political abuses, the, uh, the assassinations, it was rampant. And my dad made a decision that we were going to leave uh, Cuba and, and try to immigrate to the United States. So we made it, uh, we, we went up to, uh, to Havana. Unfortunately, my parents could not get out initially. Hmm. Um, for, for there was a program by the uh, Catholic Church called Pedro Pan, Peter Pan program. Uh, and my father was able to get me into that program. That program uh, in two years brought out like, I think it was 40,000 
I'm sorry, 4,000 uh, plus uh, kids, I believe. Wow. But anyway, I was one of those. I uh, got on a plane by myself at the age of 10 to go to the United States. Uh, I ended up in a Catholic orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado, Sacred Heart Orphanage. That was a growing experience, to say the least. Mm. You know, Robert, the biggest part of this phase of my life is it showed me the love of a parent, the, the sacrifice a parent is willing to do. I'm an only child. Um, to, to, you know, to put your son on a plane to a country you may not even ever go to. Uh, yeah. So I, I honestly believe that that was kind of like my foundation for what I eventually developed. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm a father, and I can't imagine putting my children are older, but uh, when they were 10, putting them on a plane alone, it just, and having the thought that I would never see them again, unbelievable. But they were able to join you, what, eight months later, 10 months later? Yeah, that's correct. About nine, a little over eight months later, they, they made it to the States uh, just before the closing of the flights. Hmm. Uh, and that was the first time I, I spoke to them or heard from them in eight months. Quite a beginning, that's for sure. When you got older, you decided to join the Air Force at the tail end of the Vietnam War. What was that like for you? Well, you know, it was a uh, it was an awakening. Uh, after high school, I um, I had time to kind of grow up, and I and I realized that I had a huge debt of honor um, to this country for what it did for my family and for myself. And uh, my draft number was so high, my parents had been celebrating because they they thought I would never get. And I volunteered. I went into into pararescue. And uh, yeah, that did not go well at the home front. I can tell you that. But uh, for me, it was a um, it was a new beginning, um, and it was something of purpose. And my goal was to go to Vietnam. Yeah, I uh, I saw that in uh, another interview that I watched of yours. But the war wrapped up fairly quickly after you joined. And uh... yes, by the time I got out of the pipeline and got my beret, it was late '72. By the time I finished the post training. Uh, and all that, uh, Vietnam was pretty much on, on, on being closed down. Yeah, they weren't sending any more troops over, just uh, pilots, basically. <laughs> so how after the after the war, how did your path cross with the CIA? Well, you know, the as much as I am uh, proud and, and honored of being a pararescueman, um, I wasn't making a difference. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, I was jumping out of airplanes with scuba suits and all this great ninja stuff and having a blast, but it had no purpose. Um, so I applied to the agency in 74. They were not hiring. They were firing at that time. Mm. And I applied again, I think it was in 79-ish. Um, and by that time, I had I was in the reserves and I was riding rescue with Metro Miami Dade. And... Um, the combination of pararescue and the in, in the in the current medics there skills, I was an EMT too. Um, the agency said, "Look, we could use you on contract to support our special activities division, which is, as you know, our special operations forces for the CIA, um, in training and perhaps even submissions." Uh, that exposed me to them. Uh, I worked with those guys for for a few months on and off. And then uh, when Reagan took power um, and decided to do something about our commun communism in our backyard, um, he created the program, uh, the Antisandinista Contra program, as they called it. And the agency called me back because, um, like I told you, they've been firing before. Right. They didn't have a single native Spanish-speaking 
Spanish looking, Hispanic looking guy that had paramilitary skills. That was my backdoor ticket into the agency. And uh, you ended up fighting alongside or training the Contras in Nicaragua uh, to fight the communists. And I did watch some footage of, of you doing that. And how did it feel coming almost full circle, leaving a communist country to then fighting the communists? You know, for me, that was a, the, the most satisfying of all my uh, of all my career episodes. Um, and at first, I didn't realize it. I just knew that I was having a great time. But re- I realized that now I am fighting the monster that I couldn't fight when I was ten years old. The monster mm-hmm. that destroyed my first country and that destroyed my family, and also the exposure to the purity of the combatants there in in. Uh, in the Contra program, you know, they, they all had a reason, a personal reason for being there. It wasn't political. It wasn't ideological. It was primarily, like my father, people desperate to uh, regain freedom for their families. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, that program ended up being shut down, unfortunately, because of uh, an aviator that was shot down and captured, correct? That's correct. Yeah, that was Hessenfuss. That was the first time that it was shut down. It was restarted after that. Yeah, that, that was the beginning of uh, of a very big, long period where there was an attrition there. But, you know, Robert, this this program was the first successful black operation, uh, mm. covert action that the agency had done in quite a while. And the reason it was successful is because through arming and training the uh, the Contras, we forced the Sandinistas to a, ne- a negotiating table. And part of that deal was legal supervised elections uh and they they ended up losing power but uh you know that 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 for me was was such a great episode even though by that time i had left that program when when they Mm -hmm. finally culminated in in their peace is because i was the first man on the counter camps for the agency period and for the first 14 months of my my tenure there i did a little over three years sleeping in a jungle hammock monday through friday um, I was the only CIA officer allowed there. So I'm the one that taught them everything from headspace and timing on their 50 cals uh, to uh, RPG-7, patrolling, intel. Um, it was a very rewarding job. And like like you read, we did get in, in uh, got caught in a couple of little ambushes that we had to kind of yeah. push our ways out of that. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, something a little bit different. Historian and author Samuel Mitchum will be here with an extraordinary new book, The Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, the definitive guide to the 426 leaders of the South's war effort. Okay, Lucius Northrop, the commissary general, he was incompetent. The Confederacy never was properly supplied with food. You you compare that to the Ordnance Department under uh, Gaius. When Lee surrendered, the, the men had no food that was one of the reasons they had to surrender. But they all had at least 40 rounds of ammunition in their cartridge boxes, some of them at 75. That's next time. Summer is a great time for catching up on military history, and my book about the seven Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Now back to the conversation.
it seemed like that uh, your training was very effective with the Contras because I noted the story of you training former lobster fishermen to be uh, frogmen, <laughs> commandos. Yeah, that, that was uh, that was probably the highlight of uh, the positive highlight of, of uh, my, my tenure there because um, headquarters came in with a re- requirement. They said, "Look, you know, you guys are doing great on raids and ambushes, but politically, we need a good left hook to um, to get these people's attention. Let them realize this is not a ragtag bunch of you know farmers that indeed they 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 have some punch." So I came up with that idea. The Mosquito Indians, which are from the East Coast, and were always one of my favorites because they were natural warriors. Um, One of them noticed that I had my military scuba badge on my hat. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I was a diver. And he said that he was also, and he introduced me to six of his friends. And that stayed in back of my mind. So uh, I trained them. I spent uh, three weeks on a deserted island, giving them a compass swims and all this other stuff and how to tie, tie the devices under bridges. And, um, and we, we successfully, I took them out there to, uh, to Puerto Cabezas, which was at the time, the belly button of uh, military logistics for, for, uh, for the Sandinistas coming from Cuba, mm-hmm. coming from the Soviet union via Cuba. And, um, we blew that thing out of commission for a while there. And that was a lot of, that, that was a very rewarding, uh, you know, uh, mission. Yeah, you sent them a message, that's for sure. In going through your book and, and reading it over, I saw that sections were redacted, which I thought was interesting. And, and it occurred to me to ask you the question, if you know it, how much of your work remains classified to this day with the agency? Yeah, we left a little bit of the of the black out there. I, there was actually a lot more than we left in the book. Um, the the uh, publishers thought that they would be kind of a teaser, kind of a little bit of a, you know, add, add a little mystique to it. Mm-hmm. Um, my book spent six months at CIA getting approved. So everything that is in that book is, is fully approved. I would venture to say that um, 80%, 80% they allowed in the book, which to me was amazing. Um, yeah. Being able to brief the vice president of the United States on my special programs at the end of my career, all those things were a very pleasant surprise. There were some things I was hoping that they would that they would let me talk about, but uh, that didn't come through. Yeah, so I was at twenty percent. There's twenty percent there that uh, remains, and I'll be honest with you: out of that twenty percent, there's ten percent that I would never want it to come out. So yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. Well, maybe I couldn't imagine. <laughs> As we entered uh, the '90s, you got tasked to track uh, in 1995 uh, a Middle Eastern financier who was funding terrorism. And no one had heard of his name, but you were assigned to track him. And his name was Osama bin Laden. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was uh, another milestone. Um, I'm a plank owner of the Alex Station, uh, bin Laden Task Force, um, that was started uh, in late 95. We actually broke around on uh, January of 96. Mike Scheuer, uh, a renowned analyst, was the one guy that really knew about bin Laden, he had been tracking him and he made a case strong enough to our seventh floor that they authorized this special station. We were actually a, a CIA station outside of our building with releasing, releasing authorities and everything else to be able to task everybody in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Robert, that's the very same unit, the very same unit that years later was finally able to geolocate, you know, Osama bin Laden and have our seals um, shoot him in the face. Now, at the time, um, 
maybe the political will was not there, but you had opportunities to capture him or take him out. Why do you think that that wasn't done at the time? Well, you know, we all have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. The old uh, sure. what would have happened if we would have shot, you know, Hitler in 1937. Yeah. yeah. But uh, we did have great opportunities to neutralize him, not necessarily kill him, but even bring him to justice. We knew what he was doing. We had multiple sources telling us what he was doing, the corruption in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, gaining money, the, the training camps. We had overhead of his training camps and everything else. But it wasn't politically palatable, uh, as, as you mentioned. And, and here is the, 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 the problem that we suffer in this country, which is part of our, you know, our, our strengths at the same time, is you cannot run operations through an, a political optic. No. Uh, operations should be led and devised and approved by the people that know what the hell they're doing. That doesn't mean you don't do it with White House approval, but you cannot allow a political you know, optic to change that. Bay of Pigs is a perfect example of that and many, many others. Yeah. Sure. Well, the whole Vietnam War would be another sure. case of that. Absolutely. Now, you left the CIA just three years after 9-11. That got me thinking, what were your reasons for that? Because we were right in the middle of the war on terror. Yeah, and what happened was, uh, I was, like you said, I was chief of ops uh, for CTC when 9-11 when, uh, happened. Uh, I took over in May of, of, of 2001. And uh, later in the year, um, or maybe even early 2002, I told Kofor Black, who was then my, my boss, director of the center, that, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're hurting them in, in Afghanistan, but these people are worldwide. We need to have a program by which we, need to, we can go out and, and um, you know, disrupt these individuals. One of the par parts of the motto for CTC is disrupt uh, right. these attacks, uh, prevent and everything else, but disruptive is, is how you do it. So I came up with a concept of um, surveilling, making book lifestyle uh, patterns of two or three major terrorists from each organization that are, are harming us, Hamas, Hezbollah, and, and of course, Al-Qaeda. And the concept was if we were having the chatter that we had during 9-11, that we knew something was happening, but we just didn't know what. Having two or three senior logistic support individuals that are accessible to us, can you imagine the disruption if all of a sudden three of those guys get taken out of business, whether it's arrested by the cops or duct taped and brought back to the States mm -hmm. or, or the ultimate option, uh, any organization that all of a sudden gets eviscerated at that level would put the brakes on whatever they're doing because they would feel that they're compromised. So that was the concept that I proposed. That's the concept that I, I, that I briefed with the vice president of the United States and Condoleezza Rice. They loved it, approved it. Um, but when I saw that my agency had lost the, uh, the determination to take this kind of step, um, I cannot afford to have the quality of officers that I had in my unit um, be, be a paper tiger. Right. So I said, you know what, if I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave on a high. You know, I went from Osama bin Laden to chief of ops to my last two and a half years on the street, uh, even though I was a senior officer, um, I wanted to leave on a high. That makes sense. And in reading your book, I noted that one of the reasons you wrote the book is the fact that the CIA has 
unfortunately gained a reputation of not being one of the best trustworthy organizations. And you say in your book that you won't, you wanted to change that because the people that you work work with were not like that. Could you speak on that a little bit? Absolutely, and it's definitely the number one reason that I wrote the book. I had never had intention of being an author, much less a best-selling author. That, <laughs> that was never a moniker that I had lusted after. But you know, um, my agency is portrayed, the average American knows about the agency from what they see in Hollywood. Right. If you look at the theme from Hollywood, it, it's either um, a Jason Bourne type individual that is trained to kill you know, uh, and then at the end, they're trying to clean up their act because they don't want it to become public or to go to Congress. And they started hunting him down. And, and that's such a, a, a criminal approach to the patriotism and the heroism of my colleagues. Um, you know, we have 139 stars on our wall of honor. And about a third of that is post 9-11, which means I know a lot of those folks. And um, I felt uh, I, I felt an obligation to give s- as many people as I can, and thank you for your help for getting the word out, a, right. a, a more healthy view, a more realistic view. You read the book, you know that if there's a black guy to be had, I, I gave him because there were certain things that I criticized, like you said, not acting on bin Laden, and like I just mentioned about my, my special programs. But I, I wanted to make sure that people understood the quality of, 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 my, of my colleagues, the ethos and the patriotism of the average uh, CIA operations officer. Well, it uh, certainly comes through in the book. And Thank the you. book is called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Robert. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, something a little bit different. Historian and author Samuel Mitchum will be here with an extraordinary new book, The Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals, the definitive guide to the 426 leaders of the South's war effort. Okay, Lucius Northrop, the commissary general, he was incompetent. The Confederacy never was properly supplied with food. You know, compare that to the Ordnance Department under uh, Gallius. You know, when Lee surrendered, the, the men had no food. That was one of the reasons they had to surrender. But they all had at least 40 rounds of ammunition in their cartridge boxes, some of them 75. That's next time. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.